If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. This is another of our popular Listener's Choice interviews, which we're playing over the weekend. We've chosen the most popular interviews for you to select the Listener's Choice winner. If you're not sure how the Listener's Choice competition works, have a look at horsechats.com slash choice for the rules and the leaderboard. If you have the same vision as International Horse College, which is to have a world where people safely appreciate, respect and enjoy their horses, and the horses appreciate, respect and enjoy their people, then have a look at their website, internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation 31352. Today I'd like to introduce you to Jim Collin, who's a Level 2 instructor, dressage specialist. He's also a Level 1 general, so a bit of a venting, show-jumping background there as well. Now Jim works a lot with young horses and warm bloods and does a lot of braking, training and coaching. How are you today, Jim? Good, thank you, Glennis. How are you? Good, good. Jim, we're going to start off with your favourite quote. My favourite quote at the moment is, you're better to regret something you did than something you didn't do. So I guess ultimately <laughs> that means get out and give it a, give things a try. Yeah, there's interesting stories about doctors say on people's deathbed, you know, they look back at what they didn't do rather than what they did do. You know, you do something, yeah, so. you do something, you do it wrong, you learn, you get up and you move on. But if you don't do it, you never, ever know what was going to happen. Yeah. That's exactly right. You're yeah. better off uh, giving things a crack. Um, otherwise, you never know. Yep. Oh, exactly, exactly. Exactly. Tell us how you've used that in the past, how it's inspired you. Well, with the horses, I think um, using some experimentation and being a more of a proactive rider than a reactive rider works better mm-hmm. so that you're the one trying things and creating a response rather than reacting to a horse's response. So I think that works best and is a good philosophy in horse riding. I don't always think it's a great philosophy in life. There's <laughs> okay. a few things you do that you regret. But in horse riding, yeah, being proactive rather than reactive is a better way of thinking. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And and as I said, you know, that's what people are regretting on their deathbed, that they didn't give it a go. Sometimes you've just got to yeah, exactly. give it a go. Yeah. Exactly, okay. Yeah. We're, we're going to start off with horses because you were from a horse family, weren't you, or not? My mother had an interest in horses and she's yes. what introduced or who introduced us to horses at a very young age. Mm-hmm. She wasn't particularly horsey herself, but they moved to the country when they had us. And yeah, I don't recall ever not having a horse. So we started very young. Okay. And yeah. what type of riding were you interested in when you first started? When we first started, we just went through the pony club scene before moving into breed classes, uh, mainly stock horses, Appaloosas. I, I trained for a few people and then moving into show jumping and eventing and then finally dressage. But it all started in the pony club and hacking scene. And I spent a lot of my time riding up through the Waddington Mountains, trail riding by myself, Yeah, learning the skills of riding up through the bush, um, yeah, it played a big part in my in my training. It's a good way to get a lot of hours in the saddle, isn't it? You know, to just exactly. go I mean, out yeah. riding. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Hours in the saddle, building your core strength, getting yep. a feel for the horse. Yep. Yeah, very important. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how did you make the jump from the breed classes? Because you went through a stage where you did jumping and eventing as well, didn't you? 
Yeah, so I went to university out in Orange at the Ag College there and did a Bachelor of Management specialising in equine business. And through the university there and through Simon Cale, who was one of our instructors there, that's where we started doing eventing and the campaigns and horses for the university. And then I continued eventing for a couple of years with Simon Cale after we finished uni. Okay, okay. And then you made the switch to dressage? Is there anything uh, brought that so on? Or? Yeah. Well, I went show jumping after that um, with uh, Tony Norman, but then I broke my neck off a young horse, the one that we were breaking in. And after that, I sort of re-evaluated my competition career and thought maybe perhaps dressage would be a wiser choice for long-term longevity Mm, mm. and safety. Yeah, And 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 it kind of suited my style of riding. I'm quite tall, so um, yeah, getting over the fences without knocking my my feet (laughs) on the fence. Um, became a little difficult. So, yeah, yep. that seemed to be the best way to go. Okay, good, good. And then moving from there and going on to a career, did you come like straight out of uni? Because you did it specialising in equine. Did you come straight out of that and go straight into horses? Did you make a decision? How did that work out? Before that, I sort of became a professional rider at about 15. So, before university, I'd started oh, so um, you were doing, training you were for already, other people. Yeah, already doing that while you're at uni, were you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then um, thought I'd better get some qualifications on paper to help back up the riding skills yes. and to have a life after horses. Mm-hmm. But yeah, since then I've just sort of continued to develop um, becoming a trainer and yeah, never particularly had a real yep. job. Yep. Just always yep. working with horses, yeah. And those qualifications are important too because if people don't know you but find out you've got a certain qualification, at least they know that you've got that level of skill, you know, that you can actually do. Yeah. Yes, it definitely gives you something um, on paper to sure. back up your knowledge. I and mean, I think that is very important. Yep. All right. Now, if you're looking for someone to employ, what sort of character traits are you looking at? Someone with good all-round horse skills, being mm-hmm. a good horseman or horse person, first of all. But then I quite like someone with a little bit of OCD in them, someone who's quite fanatical about the little things, yep. the tidiness, the quality of the gear and, and the way things are put on. So someone that's a little bit OCD and a little bit obsessive about the little details, I think, is very important. Okay. And somebody that's easy to get along with, somebody that's trainable and that has a good personal disposition, I think that's what's most important, yeah. I think that's important when you're working in the team, isn't it? You know, you want to enjoy coming to work and enjoy working with the people that you work with, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And it's very much a team sport. There's too much to be done, particularly if you're running a few horses, you need that backup and you need that help. Otherwise, it's too much just for one person to do and stay on top of all of the little things that need to be done when you're running some elite horses and competition horses. Okay. All right. Now, what do you think makes a top competitor, top coach, top competitor, someone who's excelled in their career with horses? Probably somebody that has trained under somebody before, that they have a coach or a mentor that can show them the ropes and really give them a good solid grounding of how to be a trainer and how to be a horse manager. And from there, they can then develop their own skills to become an elite coach or an elite rider. Firstly, you have to have talent, of course, but it's not always just talent that gets you there. Hard work and determination and not giving up, like what we talked about before, because horse riding is a very difficult game. There's a lot of ups and downs, Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people quit in the downs. You've got to put your head down, work through the down times, and look forward to the up times. So, yeah, that's what I think makes it an elite rider, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so really important to get that good grounding and good base knowledge of support before someone goes on to become 
an elite rider. Yeah. And they all do, Absolutely. you know, some, Absolutely. but some come up with talent, but then they've still got to go back and get the basics in. You know, you talk to, exactly to some right. riders that have come up, you know, just pure talent, not having a lot of lessons, got to a certain stage and then not been able to go any further because they just don't know the basics. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah, talent can only get you so far. Knowing the basics and the groundwork and getting through the tough times, that's what gives you longevity in this sport, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Oh, just let me interrupt you for a moment, just to let people know about the horse industry qualifications at Online Horse College. Have a look at the flexible options with online theory. The practical components can be completed by video or with a qualified expert in your area. That website again is onlinehorsecollege.com. Okay, thanks. Now, you talked about Steve Brady. You've talked about who else's influence. You talked about Simon Cale. Simon actually was on an earlier episode, so you'll have to look out for that one. I think it's just been released. Yeah. Um, uh, yep, yep. Yeah. Now, you did say something about Steve Brady as well. Who else has influenced you and helped you learn about horses? Or how has Steve helped you and learned more about horses? Steve, when I was very young, had a big influence on me about learning horsemanship and breaking in skills and how to train a young horse and starting young horses. So, yeah, he was very influential. He's a, a well-known stock horse breaker and clinician these days. And I found that his style of training and methodology work quite well for all, all different breeds of horses and it's very much about creating a relationship with your horse and um, developing that relationship so that the horse has trust within you that you can ask for anything of them and they say yes they'll give it a go okay. so yeah Steve was a big influence on me when I was young yeah how does he go about you know you're saying about how he develops trust because everyone wants that everyone wants to know that the horse trusts them they can trust their horse but how specifically do you think he does it what techniques he's using to develop that trust? Well, there's a well-known technique called join-up or facing-up work, yeah. and that really does develop a good bond within your horse. I don't always necessarily think it works well with performance horses because you're always, and in the beginning, you're using work or sending them off to make it difficult for them to, to when they when they lose focus. However, then when you put that work into practice if you want to lunge your horse or train your horse you're sending your horse away so that for work and it gets a little bit confusing so I've had to alter a few things in the way that we change from the young horse and Steve style or it's the same with Pirelli style or many stock horse styles I've had to change that or alter that a little bit to um, suit performance horses Mm -hmm. but getting the solid work on the ground I guess is the key before you even get up into the saddle and try to ride the horse from up on top having good trust and and good relationship with your horse on the ground and good responsiveness yeah I think that's where it all starts. Good good and what about other people Um, you talked about Heath Ryan? Yes, Heath, I used to have quite a few lessons from Heath when I was younger. Um, there was another fellow called Malcolm Kerridge who was around at the time. He had, They both had an influence on me of beginning my competition career and making the transition from, say, an amateur rider to a professional rider. Um, but more so in recent history, uh, Maureen and Jane Bruce have had a big influence on me in the dressage. And I mainly have lessons from Roger Fitzharding. He has a very practical approach to training that I find works very well for me. So, okay. um, yeah, they've all had a big influence, yeah. Good, good. Carlos, you said you'd had some work with, done some work with Carlos de Clearmaker? 
Yes, I worked with Carlos for a few years and rode a horse of his for a few years. Yeah, and, and he's an exceptional trainer in Australia and overseas. And a lot of his techniques and ideas, yeah, I really agree with. And particularly putting the final polishes on things for competitions. Yeah, very, very good at that. And very good at on the ground. Tapping you up for Piaf and Passage's timing with the whip on the legs is, is exceptional and better than anyone else that I've worked with, yeah. Good, good. It's good, actually, because you've said a couple of people that have, you know, like Carlos has been a previous guest as well. So it's nice that we're knowing that, the, you know, the people who are influential are actually coming as guests as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, for that, sure. Definitely worth hearing their opinions. Mm, mm. All right. What about horses? I've had a few horses that have influenced me over the years. When I was young, I had a very good stock horse who won many national championships and Sydney Royal Classes. Yeah. What um, was his he name? Was sold. Uh, his name was Mandalong Begun. He died a few years ago. He was sold to David Ross, who continued his career and did very well with him. I think that he died a few years ago, but he was a very well-known stock horse and out of a very well-known stock horse mare. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, he, he really was a very good horse. So he gave me my first experience and my first successes in the show world or in the competition ring. After that, I've trained a few horses. I've ridden a few horses. Southerly was a horse that I took up to FEI, but um, I trained myself. I was lucky enough to ride Neversfield Kudu or Neversfield um, – I've forgotten his name uh, – one of the Neversfeld horses, anyway, sorry. Um, okay. Yeah, they all get a bit confusing. Kudu, Kenya, Kubi, Neversfeld Kubi was his name. Yep. He was sold in Malaysia, and I rode him for Maury and Jane and rode into uh, Precinct George and into one mm-hmm. on him, and um, he really started my career in dressage, and I was lucky enough for Maury and Jane to give me the opportunity to, to ride at that higher level on that horse. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he really gave me a lot of experience in riding those higher-level movements. But I guess the most influential horse is the current horse that I'm riding and training and competing now, Neversfield Kipling. Yeah, he's a very good horse, a very talented horse, and he really makes you have to use all your skills and really improve your riding to get the best out of him. But he's certainly the talent and the temperament. Yeah, he has the potential to go all the way, and I'm, I'm really hoping to do well with this horse. It's a nice feeling having some horses that are you know, going on and have got a lot of potential, isn't it? You know, you know that they're going well and they, it just did some exhilarating, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it really makes you have to step your game up to stay with them and to get the best out of them. Um, And I think they're the horses that you really want. They're not always easy, but the most difficult ones are the most rewarding. Mm -hmm. Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot off the press notification. That is that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry, is now available and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry, if you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career. With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 101 careers in the horse industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine, maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. All right, I want you to think about the, the young ones. That you, because you've got a bit of a name for bringing on some young ones, uh, especially warm bloods with the breaking and training. 
Yep. What age? Just tell me a bit more information. What age do you normally start then? What sort of exercises do you do? What are you looking for before you move on to the next step? If you can take us through a bit of direction there, that would be great. Sure. Well, we've been starting them a little younger than other people normally would these days, um, just because warm bloods are getting so big and so talented these days that more starting to mould their minds at an earlier period of their life becomes very important before their bodies get too big and strong. So at about two and a half, we bring them in and start an initial breaking in section. We'll just introduce them to the gear, mounting, lunging, um, mouthing, and we'll just ride them off the bit around the property, I think taking them out through the trails and through the bush and making them become a horse first is very important before they become a competition horse. So, And then I'll have a spell for a couple of months and then they come back in at about three and then we put them on the bit and start to introduce uh, a connection between the leg and the rein and start to be able to control their shoulders a little bit and do some work on the circle and control their frame and control their rhythm. And then they'll have another spell for a few months and then come in between three and a half and four and that's when you really start their proper work depending on which path you want to go down, dressage, show jumping, eventing. But I think generally the process should be roughly the same. That way you've been training their minds and their bodies and developing strength and subtlety from an early age before they get too big and strong at four or five. It is possible to break them in at that age, and I do have one at the moment. He's about 18 hands and six-year-old and unbroken. Um, So it's not impossible to do them later. It just makes it more difficult. They become a little bit more set in their ways. Yeah, Mm. harder work, yeah, yeah. yeah. So lots of small sections early, I think, is the best way. It's very similar to, you know, what we do with the racehorses to bring them in, get their initial work, send them out for a spell, bring them in again, send them out for a spell. And it is, it's more about the mindset. You don't want to give them too much work too early because of the physical complications that can set in. But if you just give them that little bit of light work, but then send them out again. So when they come back in, they they remember that light work. And you're right, before they've really developed the strength. Gee, you must be going well with that six-year-old 18-hand horse. How long do you expect or what have you been doing with him so far? So far, we've done the first section. We're sort of only about three weeks in. Yep. We run on a generally about an eight to ten-week program for the breaking in, more so with these style of horses that haven't had much done beforehand. So the first week is generally just letting them settle into the property, get to know the horse, uh, work with him on the ground a little bit, start to introduce the gear, saddle and bridle, uh, and maybe start a little bit of mouthing. The second week, we'll start with the long reining and the um, mounting and just laying over the horse, desensitising him, bagging him down with with whatever you've got to uh, help desensitise the horse. Third week, generally, we start mounting and sitting on top. And I like to just get up there and sit up there for quite a while, not actually do anything or ask anything of the horse, and just get them real confident with you being up above them, moving them around and desensitising them from up above before you really start to press any buttons or introduce any buttons and that way they're a little more confident with you and that's sort of the point we're up to with this big fellow fourth week then I I like to just be led around and lunge I have somebody lunge me on the ground so I can just sit there be still and not actually ask much of the horse until we feel the horse start to relax and accept you on his back and then during the fourth and fifth week we start to introduce me taking over those controls a little bit more so starting to ask them to accept the leg accept the rein follow the rein and start to steer and turn a little bit. And then over the fifth and sixth weeks and then sixth and seventh weeks, we'll take them out, 
through the bush, expose them to as many places as we can, show them as many things as we can and help desensitise them to environmental factors. And then quite often, if the horse is younger, they'll have a spell roughly about that time. Or if the owner wants them pushed through or they're a bit older and they need to catch up a bit of time, then during the seventh, eighth, ninth weeks, we'll start to put them on the bit, ask them to accept a contact and a connection between the leg and rein, and mainly then start to control the shoulders. Once you have control of the, the front end of the frame and you have control of the rhythm or the energy from behind, Everything else is controlling the shoulders. So asking the shoulders to follow where we put the head or move away from where we put the head. And that's the most difficult part I've found with breaking in horses and particularly warm bloods. It's not natural for them to sit up and hold their shoulder and follow a bend. It's natural for them to drop their shoulder and, and fall in. And that's why most people have or find the problem of their horses falling one way or the other. So really getting a good control of their shoulders during that second or first breaking in period becomes very important. And then after that, normally um, about the 10th week, the owners will come and finding a good transfer period between me as the rider and trainer and transferring them over to the owner. I think that's also a very important part that a lot of people neglect. They think just because the horse is broken in and one person can do it, they should be able to get on and do it themselves. So we work very closely with the owners during that last period to ensure a good transfer period and that they can pick up where we've left off and then continue the horse's training. Good, good. And then taking the young horse, you know, your plan, say you've, you've sort of done the work at three and a half, four-year-old, and the owner wants to do some jumping eventing. What prerequisites or what do you do with them to get them started with that jumping eventing, that type of performance horse? Starting small, I think, and really gaining their confidence. So um, introducing top poles to a small cross rail or a small vertical, taking them through the bush and popping them over small logs so that the horse has confidence to be able to go over whatever you ask it to. And not over-facing the horse at first, I think, is very important. A lot of people want to jump big, but it comes back to bite you on the bum later on. So starting small and building up to the bigger fences, I think, is the key. And not, yeah, not overfacing your horse. Mm-hmm. The whole building up the horse's confidence and working with the horse, it's very clear in, you know, the way you've got the structured program and you keep talking about building the horse's confidence, taking the small steps. And I think, yeah, I can see why you've certainly got a good name as bringing on young warm bloods and I can see why people bring horses to you. Yeah. Yes, building the confidence is, is the main thing because once you've lost it, it takes a very long time to get back. So better off to lots of little steps and build it up right from the start. Yep, yep. Now, you also coach, you know, teach a few coaches. Yep. Yeah, what if if you're teaching a beginner coach that's never taught before, just tell me about the first time and they say, right, well, I want to become a coach, but I've never done it before. You know that they've had some formal education. You know that they've had some lessons. They might have been out, competed a bit. So they've got a a base knowledge of what they want to teach. How do you get them? And again, we're talking about confidence because it takes a certain amount of confidence to be able to project your voice to someone who's sometimes, you know, when you're starting off there, they're just being a guinea pig for you. So they might be a better rider than you. It takes a bit of confidence for a coach to start teaching. How do you build the the young coaches or the green coaches confidence? Firstly, learning good communication skills. I think there's a lot of riders that aren't necessarily good coaches 
They're very good doers and find it very difficult to put into words. So learning the communication skills to be able to put into words what you're feeling or what you're trying to gain from a rider, I think is very important. And, and I had trouble with this for many years at first. I was very much a natural rider, but not a very good natural teacher. So learning how to communicate and express what you're trying to feel from a horse is the most difficult part. How you do that is, again, by creating confidence, starting small, learning how to verbally communicate with a rider and building up a good rapport with a rider, I think, is very important. There's a lot of people that are very dictatorship within their coaching and you're sort of training riders out of fear more than building their confidence, I guess. So, But I guess learning good communication skills and, again, learning from a mentor, finding somebody that you trust and that somebody that's been there and done that before is very important. I learned from Simon Cale how to become a coach, and he's very well known, very well respected within the horse and coaching uh, community. And so finding a good mentor to help you teach and learn those things is, is very important, yeah. Yeah, good, good. And and I think you're right too about the just because you're a great rider doesn't mean you're going to be a good coach. And sometimes the coaches who haven't had a lot of natural talent as a rider can be quite empathetic and and work well with with riders that you know maybe a bit nervous or something. Sometimes the more nervous riders tend to go to the less well known coaches. They're not as well known because they haven't got the competition scores on the board, but they have learned to have a lot of empathy and work with the nervous riders. And yeah, then, exactly. Yeah, and I think as a rider, you look for coaches that are, you aspire to be. You know, if they if you if you aspire to be a top competitive rider, it's good to see a top competitive rider who's also a coach. And even if they don't have the same empathy for you, you still say, Yeah, but I can overcome that. I still want to become the way that they are. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Finding somebody that you aspire to be or that inspires you. Yeah, very important. And having a mentor in, in this game is very important. It's very difficult to cut it by yourself these days within this um, horse riding community. Yeah, yeah. Having that backup that gives you the that then that then gives you the confidence that you're going down the right path. Mm. I think that's mm. how it starts, and and you develop it from that. Yeah, and I think the mar- as far as coaches go to the marketplace decides. You know, like a, like a student will go out into the market and source a coach that's going to suit them and then stay with that coach. Yes, and I think staying with one coach, finding somebody that that suits your style of riding and um, it can take you down the path you want to go and sticking with that one system for a while is very important. Mm. Quite often because there is so much choice these days that you people pick and choose different paths or different coaches and then it doesn't really blend together. You're better off to find one path for a bit, get a good solid foundation of knowledge, and then you can start to pick and choose the pieces that suit your your structure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, find, yeah, oh, take, choose, finding a path, choosing it, very important. Yeah. Good, good. All right, now Jim, I know you don't read a lot, but you went to uni and you were focused on equine studies at uni, equine business studies. Tell me a book that you can recommend that would have helped you not not to learn to ride but just to complement you within your horse business or within your horse, you're just gaining more knowledge. 
Yeah, I, I can't really honestly name you any books. I, I try very much not to read books. Yep. Uh, yeah, very much uh, I find horse riding a very much a practical thing and a feel thing, which is only developed by practical experience. Um, so, yeah, I, I can't honestly name you any books. <laughs> That's okay. But finding a, yeah, finding a, a good mentor that you can learn the practical experience from, I, I think, is the most important thing. Okay. Quite often people read too many books and then their brain knows more than their body can do. And I find that gets them a little frustrated. So, yeah, learning the practical skills so that your body can stay, keep up with the brain, uh, very important, yeah. Yeah. Okay, Jim, just going on, you know, we talk about coaching or a few things, but going on to what you plan to do in the future, what are you looking forward to? I know that you've got a nice horse there in Neversfield, Kipling, and you're looking forward to going out, taking him forward. Um, what else? Anything else? or? What are your plans with Kipling? Yeah, I'd really like to get Kip back up to FEI level so I can and ride those higher level movements and he's definitely on track for that. Um, probably next year or the year after we'll go do our first pre-St. George into one test. So that's my main focus. I have a couple of other young horses in training for various clients. So moving them up through the levels and getting back up to that elite status of riding is sort of my focus riding-wise at the moment. And coaching-wise, I've been starting to do quite a few clinics throughout New South Wales and developing those rider skills at those clinics is sort of one of my other focuses at the moment mm-hmm. and developing more clinics, yeah, because I've been riding for or training for 25 years now and the body is starting to uh, give out a little. Mm-hmm. So starting to focus on coaching and training and, and the more theoretical side of things is something else that I'm really interested in and, and, and excited about too. Mm. It's it's exciting bringing on young riders too. You know, it's not just bringing on the young horses, but the young riders bringing them on is good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very very fulfilling. Yep. Can you sum up your philosophy into a lesson today? I guess the best philosophy for training is to follow the three Cs: uh, be clear, consistent, and concise in your training. Horses are quite simple creatures. So that we don't need to make things as complicated as we quite often do. Quite often the simplest answer is the best answer. But it's very important to have 10 answers to one of their questions, not one answer to 10 of their questions. So what works on one day might not necessarily work on the next day. So you need to have a couple of different options and try and experiment things and see what works on what day. And then always remember to train for tomorrow. We're not training for perfection. It's impossible to create perfection each day but if we make improvements each day then we get closer to perfection so train for tomorrow i think is the main thing to think about yeah good good all right jim so people can contact you you know if they're looking for young horses looking for a clinic but just some some ways that they can contact you yeah sure you can look me up on the website uh, www.jimcollin.com.au or contact me on 0417 235343. Great. The other way to contact you, we'll put all these contact details up on horsechats.com slash Jim Colin. Okay, and that's Colin without the S. It just ends with an N. Okay. All right. That's it, C-O-L-L-I-N. Yeah. Thanks very much, Jim. It was great to talk to you today and hope to talk to you again sometime. No problem, Glenna. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Bye. Bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com.
registered training organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below.